Welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. Joanne Beard is a writer and professor at Sarah Lawrence College, as well as one of the founders of Best Bullies to the Rescue. Her life and writing have been beautifully informed by the dogs she has encountered, both the dogs she lives with as well as the ones that she has helped to rescue. Her story about Rufo, the first dog she helped save from a life in a crate at a municipal shelter, is a bittersweet and powerful testament to the difficult but critical work of rescue groups everywhere. Hi, Joanne. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's great to see you again. We met originally at Yonkers Shelter. I was just getting started there volunteering, and you were coming in with your rescue group. That's where the rescue group that I'm part of was formed, was at the Yonkers Shelter. And now we've sort of branched out to take in dogs that are from around the Westchester area and also the city now. Wonderful. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. So let's back up a little bit. And again, it's great to have you here on the show. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest. Whereabouts in the Midwest? Moline, Illinois, which is right on the Mississippi River. Oh, okay, nice. I'm from Cincinnati. Oh, great. So we kind of have similar backgrounds. And it's a great place. I love having grown up in the Midwest. Yeah, me too. And I don't know that I would like to live there necessarily right now, but it's a wonderful place. I love visiting and I do love what I experienced while I was growing up there. It was great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> great. So growing up, did you have dogs? Our family had one dog the whole time I was growing yeah. up. She lived to a long age and yes, we were devoted to her. What was her name? Well, she had two names. My sister and I named her Tammy, unironically, um, because we had a doll named Tammy. Right. And her name evolved, as dogs' nicknames do, into Yimmer. So we called her Yimmer at the end of her life. Okay. Yeah. How long did she live to, do you know? Probably 17. Uh Uh-huh. Beautiful. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a great gift. Yeah. Cool. And then you found your way to the East Coast? I did. I made my way to the East Coast after I became a writer, and I live upstate New York now. I don't live in the city. I live in a small town, again, in a rural setting that I'm used to, Mm -hmm. just about two hours north of the city. Beautiful. So you have more of a bucolic, rural experience. I do. Most of my life has been spent living in the country or near the country, mostly so that I could have dogs Uh and be around animals and birds and foxes and raccoons. Unfortunately, I don't work where I live. I work down closer to the city in Westchester as a teacher at a college. What college is that? Sarah Lawrence College. Amazing, which has an incredible reputation. Yeah, it's a good place to work. And what do you teach there? I teach writing. Okay. So you're a writer and you also teach writing. That's right. Great. So your own writing, and I read in your bio, and we've talked about this before, your normal morning is you get up, you read the New York Times, and then you find your way to your studio to start writing. What kind of things do you write about? I write a personal essay. I write fiction. I write memoir. Whatever happens to float through my Mm -hmm. mind at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. And have dogs ever been a part of your writing? Always. They've been a part of my studio always. Yeah. I know you can relate to that. Yes. So I've always been surrounded by dogs. I've always loved dogs. They've meant something to me emotionally that is really hard to describe, but I will try to describe it at some point today. But yeah, because I write about my own life, everything gets filtered through my own sensibility. Dogs appear in my work. Mm -hmm because they appear in my life. Right. So after growing up with Tammy Yimmer, who was your next dog? I had a dog named Levon, who I had for a very short period of time. This is very interesting, Mm -hmm. now that you're getting me to remember Levon, because in the cold, snowy Midwestern winter when I was 19 years old or something, I pulled my little Volkswagen Beetle over to the side of the road to scrape my windshield And when I got back in my car, there was a dog in there. There was a lost dog. Oh, my God. And I never found the home for that dog, even though I tried. So I took him home with me. And I had him for a couple years. And he started to bite people. Uh. He had a medical difficulty, which is that he had broken his tail at some point before I met him. And sometimes he would be in excruciating pain, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing they could do about it, and I had to have him euthanized. Mm -hmm. It was the first great death in my life. Yeah. And it was really, really hard. And as an adult, it was your responsibility. I had to. Yeah. Well, not only as an adult, but as the only person in the world who truly loved Levon, I was the person who had to do that yes for him and to him yeah which is what it felt like at the time sure like I'm doing this to him but I couldn't see my way fit to not do it yeah he was suffering yeah and that is a very tough obviously a very tough thing for all of us when I lost my dog tiny Tim who was really my hairy soulmate it was his time he had cancer he had lymphoma there was no turning around for anybody that's had to experience that, it's like this gate just closes down and they go somewhere which we have no idea where right. they've gone. Right. And a lot of people that I've spoken to, when they've lost a human, it's one kind of feeling. But when they've lost a dog, it's a very different one because the dogs are so innocent and they're so dependent on us. And I always think about, so what are they doing in the afterlife? Like, are they by themselves? It's such a hard thing, of course, to get your head around right we're not supposed to know that that's the great mystery (laughs) thank you whether there even is an afterlife but yes and as I was saying to you earlier I just lost my dog autumn Mm -hmm. and she was old and she had to be put down because she had an inoperable tumor and, and it just had to happen there was no way around it but what was so the discovery that I made after that which after all these years of thinking about dogs and and having to deal with dogs who were sick, dogs who were well, you know, rescue dogs, my own dogs. I really realized after Autumn died that she was my conduit to joy Mm -hmm. because her sense of joy was so immense that I started to feel the world through her point of view. And so when she was gone, I would be driving in my car, and for a moment I would think, oh, I have to roll down the back window because Autumn likes these trees. 
like I'm driving under this certain arbor, she loves these trees. And then I would think, oh no, she's not there. She's not there to appreciate these trees. And she died right at Christmas, and she loved Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. And she was deaf, so she perceived the world completely, you know, obviously through her nose the way all dogs do. But she stared at the world in this really particular way. And so when I would drive her around at night, which was her version of a walk because she was old, at Christmas there would be lights, and I would pull up next to this yard that had, like crazy Christmas lights like the inflatable Santa and the moving deer and stuff yeah. like that. And she would just stare out the window like penetratingly, trying to figure out what those things were and she loved them. And so then I had to put her to sleep and I'm driving home at night thinking, well, how can I appreciate these lights without autumn? So they're a conduit yes. to help us see the world in a different way, at That's, least for me. I mean, I don't want to speak for other people, yeah. but for me, it's that. And also a conduit to a certain kind of intimate love. And I don't mean intimate like air quotes. I mean intimate like when we have close relationships with people, there's always a certain barrier that you get to where you can't go over that barrier or you're giving too much of yourself. And with dogs, there is no barrier. I can freely say to any dog, I love you, without thinking about what the ramifications are. Yes. And I can freely feel it without thinking about what the ramifications are. So I have to say that as somebody in a solid, long-term, loving relationship, and with family and friends that I adore, dogs are truly the place that I felt I could have the freest and most profound love in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And what you were saying before, also for me, the idea, I have three dogs now, and the dog that I had, Tiny Tim, who changed my life, seeing the world through their eyes and that ability for us to give of ourselves fully, the idea of loving this being without the concern of like with all that stuff that goes on in our head when we're in love or in a loving relationship with another human it's a very different thing and very beautiful and i wish for everybody to experience that i do too yeah i do too i agree with you yeah thank you for sharing that so let's go back a little bit to your first kind of introduction to westchester new york and the shelters and sort of how did you find yourself volunteering Well, I lost my, uh, we lost, we had three dogs and we lost one of them Mm -hmm. named Sheppy and he had to be put down, blah, blah, you know, the usual story. Yeah. And I work in Westchester and I don't live in Westchester. So therefore I'm down there for a couple days a week and I have time to kill. Mm -hmm. And so I was at my job, at my computer, and I went on Pet Finder the way you do sometimes. Yes, that's an obsession for me. you shouldn't be doing me. that, right. yes. And so I was browsing through the dogs, and I saw a dog that looked just like my dead dog, Shepard, uh-huh. and discovered that he was at a shelter that was literally within three minutes of the office I was sitting in at my school. So I got up, I got in my car, I drove to that shelter, 
It was a burdened shelter that had a very poor physical plant, struggling staff trying to keep up with the number of dogs that they were taking in. So it was a shelter that was filled with more cages than runs. And the cages were stacked. Yes, They were doing their best, but it was a circle of hell to walk in there. And I went in there as like this college professor wearing my little college outfit and saying, I would like to see this dog named Rufo. And they immediately said, yeah, you don't want to see that dog. He's not a good dog. He pulls on the leash. We've got other dogs to show you. And I said, no, I just really want to look at him. Because I wasn't going to adopt a dog that looked just like my last dog. Right. But I wanted to look at him to revisit Sheppy's face. Right? Yeah. So they finally grudgingly agreed to show me Rufo. And they took me to where he was. And he was in a little cage. And... They got him out for me. He didn't look in real life like Sheppy at all. Mm-hmm. But I walked him around for a minute, and I gave him back, and they put him back in the cage. And I said, so that's where he lives. Yes, that's where he lives. And for a few hours a day, we take him out, and we put him in a run for a few hours a day. That means, let's say, for tops 20 hours a day, He's living in a cage on the second tier of cages in a little room in a very deprived, struggling shelter. Yes. So I started to feel this sort of panic inside. And I said to the guy, well, how long has he been here? And he said, five years. And then he said, no, actually, I've been here five years. Rufo has been here longer than that. So I walked out, I got in my car, I drove back to my office, I called a writer that I knew who does dog rescue. Her name is Amy Hempel. I'm dropping a name here for if there are any writers out there listening. Okay. And I said, Amy, Amy, there's this dog. And I started telling her the story in five years in a cage. And I don't know what to do. I can't even go teach my class. And she said to me, we will get him out. And I thought, well, how can we do that? We can't possibly do that. And through Amy's help and through a series of moving parts that involved somebody in Massachusetts, somebody where she was teaching at Harvard, somebody who lived up on the border between Massachusetts and New Hampshire, we got Rufo out. Mm -hmm. It took three months, but we found a place for him. And I had the sheer pleasure of driving to Yonkers early one morning picking him up, taking him out of that cage for the last time, and driving him up to the New Hampshire border where he met a guy named John, good name, Yes. who adopted him sight unseen out of kindness, out of confidence, out of his love for the intermediary, a woman that Amy knew. Right. And he lived for the rest of his life In this beautiful place, he spent his summers on Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. I have pictures of Rufo enjoying life in ponds, playing with dogs, sleeping on beds, actual human beds. And that experience of trying to get Rufo out of that rusty cage and into a home where somebody could appreciate him for who he was is what introduced me to rescue. And in fact, in all the years I've been doing this, 
Rufo was the hardest rescue, the one that I was the most frightened about, and the one that had, I have to say, the happiest ending. Is that incredible? That is, that's the dream of rescue and the idea that there are those people out there and they're so hard to find. It's like a needle in a haystack to try to find that person who's willing to take that chance on a dog. Well, one of the things that we had going for us was that I called a woman dog trainer in Westchester right after I met Rufo and said, they're not even showing him to people. I don't know if he's violent. I don't know what his story is. Right. But, and she agreed to meet me at the shelter. And so I was there, Doug, a guy who had been working with Rufo for years, and then Anne, the trainer. And she spent an hour with Rufo assessing him, and she said, he's fine. Mm-hmm. He shows no sign of anything mm-hmm. except stress from being in a cage. Yeah, And... We continued to work with him the whole time we were trying to find him a home. And we were very certain that Rufo was a dog, kind of an elderly gentleman by that time, who could go into a home and make somebody very happy. And we were right, and we weren't right based on me. We were right based on a professional, Anne, who assessed him and continued to work with him and continued to assess him. That's amazing. Yeah. And so he... He changed your life. He changed my life because Anne, Doug, and I then banded together, formed a nonprofit, 501c3, called Best Bullies. Yes. And we've continued to work with shelters in Westchester to essentially identify the dogs that aren't getting out, to figure out which ones are adoptable, which ones need training, which ones need some kind of special attention. It might just be a black dog in a shelter with 30 black dogs. Yes. How to actually showcase that dog for what's particular instead of for you know, what makes it like all the other black dogs, Exactly. what makes it different from the other black dogs, and then work to find the right home for that dog. And in the meantime, of course, they're still warehoused, but we're going in and we're giving them attention Mm -hmm. and helping them work their brains, which is almost as important as, you know, working their bodies, like walking and running and playing ball. We're teaching them how to think. That's great. Yeah. And it is the the idea of what the word warehousing, it's very true. And it is, it's very hard sometimes to go to the shelters and just know that this dog's going to be sitting in this kennel or this cage or this crate for 23 hours. Right. And they may get out for a half hour and they're going to spend the rest of their day in that space. Yes, and in some shelters, when they get out for that half hour, they're so pent up and crazy and filled with happiness that a human is paying attention to them that they're all over that person and they're behaving in a way that frightens the person. Exactly, yes. (laughs) And I've been that person where I go, oh no, we need two people on this dog. (laughs) But it's not anything but shelter stress. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done in the shelters. And the shelters, for the most part, many of them are just, they really are understaffed. There's so much going on. And 
it's hard to know really where to begin with some of the dogs. And it really is one dog at a time. Yeah, and there's a serious problem of overpopulation. So that's one of the reasons so many dogs land in the shelter. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to think of it as one dog at a time when you walk into some of these cacophonous shelters where it feels like you're walking into one of the circles of hell. Yes. And all you feel around you is desperation. So then how do you go in and feel like, okay, one dog at a time? Mm Who am I going to look at? Mm-hmm. Who am I going to pay attention to? It's really hard for the volunteers, and it's hard for the people who work there to deal with the volunteers. Yeah. And it's also, you know, above and beyond hard for the dogs. Yeah. Yes, it is. So Rufo was the first dog that, I mean, and again, as we said before, he really changed your life. He inspired you to band together with other like-minded people to create a rescue. And so you've helped many, many dogs through this work, find their forever home. We have. That's great. Yeah. And in your own home, you've had how many dogs in your present home? For most of my life, because as I've said, I like to live in the country. My partner and I have had three dogs. Okay. And so then sometimes one will drop off the map due to old age, illness, infirmity, and then we'll get another dog. Right now, I only have one dog. Mm -hmm. But... I work in dog rescue, mm-hmm. so I know that's temporary. My partner is somebody who is so connected to dogs, not in a rescue way. He right. doesn't have that rescue bone in his body, but there's a certain kind of dog that he really loves. And so it's only a matter of time before we're up to running speed, I'm sure. Yeah. But that time in between when you only have one dog, It feels a little bit like deprivation for the dog itself. Right. But also there's a sense of like absolute freedom. Like we only have one dog right now. Exactly. We can take her with us. Right. And this is Jet. This is Jet. Yes. Tell me about Jet. Jet's just a big, black, beautiful, gorgeous dog who looks sort of like a black golden retriever. Mm -hmm. And she came from the pound in Kingston, which is just a little shed by the railroad tracks where the dogs who haven't been cherry-picked by the SPCA and other rescues wind up. Yeah. And she was on Pet Finder, and we went to look at her, and she was magnificent. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why she wound up there except for the usual problem of overpopulation. Right, so you don't know her backstory. We only know that she was a stray. She was unneutered. She was completely wild and insane. Uh And... At some point, one of us said to her, sit, because she was like pulling on the leash and she instantly sat. And so somebody had loved her and had trained her. And then she came home with us. Nice. And she was she was actually perfect from the moment we got her uh-huh. home. Oh, that's great. How old do you think she is? I think she's about nine now. Okay, nice. Yeah. And she's good with other dogs? She's great with other oh, dogs. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's good. I have three dogs at home right now. And living by myself in New York City, it's challenging, but I make it work and it's such a joy. I mean, they keep me honest in the sense that they get me up in the morning. We're up at 530. I have to walk one by himself, the three-legged chihuahua, because he's a handful. He's not dog friendly except with his siblings. So I can't walk all three of them at once. It's a disaster. And then the other two are very bonded and I walk them together and they're great. It's a huge part of my life. And I wonder 
I kind of can't imagine not having three dogs now. And living in New York, I was very lucky to find an apartment that would allow me to have three dogs. But in the country, I think three is a lovely, wonderful number. Yeah, it's great. It's not hard if you live in a place where you have, you know, room for them to be outside, to be together, to form their own pack, to form their own relationships. And I just want to say the thing about trying to walk three dogs at once, it's really hard. Yes. I see these dog walkers in the city and I think, oh my God, it's like a kind of ballet, what they do. Yes. It's miraculous. It is. But to have three dogs means that you're forced to live in their world Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I find their world to be a wonderful, mysterious, fabulous, happy place. Yes, I agree with you. So autumn passed this past Christmas. Was there something about, like, you actually spoke about this, about how she she inspired you to look through her eyes to yeah. see the world. And how about Jet? Is there a certain something that she brought to you that's taught you or inspired you in some way? She's so soft in all ways. Mm-hmm. She's almost like she melts when you touch her. Mm. And the thing that we never stop talking about with Jet is who lost her. Who lost this incredible, loving, easy, happy, just like, see, I've lost words and I'm supposed to be the word person. (laughs) Like, who let go of this dog or who didn't look hard enough to find her? And that takes you into a different realm of dog rescue, which is the people who have to let go of their animals that they love. And I thought about that with Autumn, too. A deaf... 11-year-old dog returned to the same shelter she had been adopted from when she was six months old. What kind of family crisis required that they relinquish their dog? Like, what do you give up in your life before you give up your dog? And they were grief-stricken by having to give her up, which is why we snatched her up right away. Like, for the sake of the family and for the sake of the dog who was old, she was a senior, and there was no reason that we could think of that she should go into a cage. Yes. And so she landed first with Anne, and then Anne gave her to me. Great. So, yeah, I mean, there are human issues involved with people relinquishing their dogs also. Yeah, all the time. And I know that with the city shelter here in New York, the animal care centers, they have developed a group of counselors now that work with people who are coming in to surrender their animal to see if there's any way that they can help them keep the animal at home. And that's actually helped them keep their numbers down. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to be that proactive in the beginning because they have to take in every animal. And it is. It's especially hard when I see the seniors land at the shelter. And I always think, oh, they'll be fine because they're seniors, so they'll get adopted quicker, but it's not always the case. And one of my fantasies is to create a senior sanctuary, at least something that's almost like a halfway house, so that these dogs don't have to spend one night in that kind of environment. There is one upstate near Woodstock for specific kinds of big dogs. Uh But, yeah, I was going to say that the shelters in the city, especially we, Best Bullies, likes to have them contact us. If somebody comes in and says, this dog has like a medical problem and we have to relinquish it, which happens all the time. Elderly dogs that need medication, ongoing medication, and people cannot do that. And so we ask them to contact us 
to say we actually have funds to help with medical yeah. care that will keep a dog in the house. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing because yeah. rather than that dog having to go into the system and trying to figure it out afterwards, that's great. Yeah, no trauma for the family, no trauma for the animal. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, in general, I know this is a big question, how do you think dogs rescue us? Well, Rufo changed my life. Mm -hmm. He opened up a whole new window into a world that I didn't know was there, which is a world of people who love dogs in the same way I do. And so it made it possible for me to have a whole new circle of friends who weren't writers, who weren't academics, who weren't people from my past. These were people from my present that were occupying the world and I had no idea they were there. And as an adult, as somebody, I guess I was probably in my 50s when this happened, to be in your 50s and have a whole new world, a whole new community open up to you, it was exhilarating. Yeah. And I have to say it still is. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. I feel the same way when I started volunteering. Really, well, I started working with the North Shore Animal League in Long Island, but when I really started to volunteer, it was life-changing. The people that I met that I probably would never have met otherwise, we all shared this love of the dogs and just trying to figure out how can we help them. And it really does take, it takes a village in many aspects. And I have this whole other group of friends now because of that. Right. And I love that. I agree with everything you've said. And there's another aspect that I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It makes you feel good to help a creature that needs help. Mm -hmm. It just is a good feeling. Yeah. Like, I felt so proud of myself after Rufo that I would look over and over at the pictures that were sent to me of him standing in the pond or playing with another dog. And it was a feeling, I mean, I guess it's ego, but it's also just... There's a muscle that doesn't get used very often for most of us, and it's the compassion muscle. And when you use it, you know, you just feel better. Yeah. It's like a little spurt of serotonin in your brain or Abs dopamine or something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the same way when there's certain dogs that I've been involved with that I've helped find a home in certain ways, whether it was raising money or helping to transport them, whatever it was, and to see them having an adventure or see them in the pond or see them in bed with their owner or whatever. It just, it really, I have a whole photo album on my computer of, of those dogs yeah. and their stories. Yeah. Even the dogs that I have at home have rescued me in many ways, but these dogs rescue me all the time because they do, they help me develop that muscle right. of compassion. I think we all, of course, have compassion, but it's a very specific tendon of compassion. Now, do you have any recommendations, any advice for people that would like to get into working in rescue, working in shelters? Well, I guess go to your local shelter and volunteer, mm -hmm. which is essentially what I did, mm -hmm. you know? even though it has this other kind of Rufo aspect to it. Or, you know, find a rescue that you believe in and get involved with them. Of course, as you know, somebody involved in rescue, the most important thing we need are fosters. Yes. We need people who are willing to take dogs in on the short term, not the long term, the short term, to help them de-stress from 
what they've been through in the shelter, and also just to make it possible to photograph them in a home environment so people can see, let's say, for instance, the generic black dog in somebody's kitchen with their own bowl. It changes the way people think about that black dog. Absolutely. I agree with you. I'm so glad that you brought up fosters because there are dogs, for example, a dog that I know at Yonkers has been there for years and years, Cola, and he finally got into a foster home and just seeing him in a dog coat and seeing him on his own little dog bed and out in the world. I mean, it just, it's changed everybody's perception of him and it doesn't end there, but at least he's now out of the shelter environment. Yay for Cola. Yeah, I know. So, Joanne, where can we find Best Bullies online? It's bestbullies.org. Okay. And we have a Facebook page, and then we have just a regular page site for our rescue that shows you some of the dogs that we've actually adopted out, the happy tails, Wonderful. as we say. Wonderful, yeah. And also shows you which dogs are up for adoption. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. In your own writing, I know that you said that you've been published in many different places, and you've written a couple of books? Yes, I have a collection of essays, and I have a novel, and then I have just, I'm always writing, Mm -hmm. so I have various essays and short stories that, I mean, that's my real work in the world, is to be a writer, and to sort of interpret my own life through literature, so teaching and dog rescue sort of come after writing but if you're a writer you need another part of your life that'll take you away from your desk and so i've been lucky enough beautiful what are you working on right now i'm putting together another collection of essays Uh wonderful yeah great well thank you so much for joining us today joanne and for the work you do thank you and you have such a beautiful way of speaking about dogs their world and rescue, which is so important to me. So I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks. I loved hearing about Joanne's creative process and how the dogs in her life inform it at every turn. And I could totally relate to her experience in the rescue world. I have a whole new community of friends and colleagues who I never would have met otherwise. Her work with Best Bullies has helped so many dogs and I am super inspired by that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is a production of As It Should Be, a content studio, and it's made with the support of our producer and editor, Jack Summer. Special thanks to our composer and neighbor, Daniel Lampert, for creating the music for the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can subscribe to Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, please leave a review or rating. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People. You can also check out the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, at johnbartlettny.com. Enjoy a walk with your dog and make it a great day for both of you.